With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. One of my vendors, he said, you know, I would love to introduce you to my friend who works at Shark Tank. And I said, no, don't introduce me. We're not big enough. I don't know if I'm ready. But the next day there was an email introducing us and Ali was immediately super bullish about getting Swoveralls on there. He's like, this is going to be perfect. The whole Shark Tank thing was wild. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. You were just listening to Kyle Bergman, founder of the clothing brand Swoveralls, professor at NYU Tandon School of Engineering and fitness instructor. Though these titles sound pretty impressive, Kyle was not always sure of himself as an entrepreneur or a leader. Before Swoveralls' success, Kyle was told to stay in his lane by Bloomingdale executives, got rejected on Shark Tank, and juggled a full-time job while playing for the Israeli national lacrosse team. Everyone has to start somewhere, from professional artists to Fortune 500 CEOs to the creator of the first sweatpant overalls. For Kyle, his journey began when his dad grew tired of watching six-year-olds play baseball. Many, many moons ago, when I was about seven, my dad decided he didn't want to watch me play baseball anymore. My dad went to a local garage sale in town and found some lacrosse equipment and said, son, you're playing lacrosse now in the spring. I didn't realize it at the time as just a kid, but there wasn't a seven-year-old or or second-grade lacrosse team in my town. And so I had to play with the bigger kids. And uh, probably the first experience in my life that we could kind of put under the bucket of uh, trial by fire. The endurance Kyle gained from lacrosse would eventually prepare him for the professional world, where he would once again be the underdog. But before we dive into Kyle's later years, let's take a look at another one of his early interests, photography. Yeah, I was really interested and had been for a while at that point in making videos. With my, one of my best friends, Sam, my, my dad's name is Hillary, and I remember around that time, Kill Bill came out uh, by Tarantino, and we made a, a spoof of it called Kill Hill, and my dad starred in it, and we like filmed around the house, and we would always like be making videos. Yeah, that, I mean, I, I wasn't ever thinking about what am I going to do with the rest of my life. I never had that kind of cliche, like, I want to be an astronaut sort of ambition, but I was really really into making movies. That was actually really important on my entrepreneurial journey because around that time I started to develop these like 
self-taught skills of video editing and started to use Photoshop. And, and that really came into play big time early on in the Swoverall's journey when I didn't have to hire someone to, to make our Kickstarter campaign video. In high school, started to kind of identify as a lacrosse player. And I started to say to myself internally and also to my friends and my family members that I wanted to play in college. I wanted to get a Division I scholarship. That was also really the first exercise that I had, now that I think about it, in um, the magic of public accountability. You know, saying something out to the universe and then all of a sudden saying, oh, geez, I guess now I have to actually do it because I'm saying this not just to myself in a monologue, but to everyone else. But I remember that summer, my sophomore year, I spoke to my high school lacrosse coach and, and asked him directly what he thought my chances were of playing Division One lacrosse. And he said, not great. <laughs> he said, you're, you're too small. And also, you know, talent-wise, you, you might be good enough, but you just don't have the size. And so I think you should set the bar lower. What did that feel like to hear? It hurt. But at the time, I was, I was upset. And instead of kind of shrugging my shoulders and, and saying, maybe I am just a Division three lacrosse player, I really worked hard lifting weights, working on conditioning, muscular endurance. I was able to work really hard and ended up getting a Division I scholarship to Drexel in Philadelphia. So at that point, I'm, I'm at Drexel University in Philadelphia. It is a co-op school, so a lot of students will graduate in five years, but they'll also get like a year and a half of real world work experience that in theory is tied to what they're studying. So they're set up for success when they graduate. I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. Yeah, there was a part of me that's like, maybe I'll just be a professional cross player or coach or I don't know, I'll do something in business at some point. But I had to get a co-op. I didn't want to go work at a finance firm. I didn't want to go do it any of my other friends were really doing. So I found Amanda, who is a real professional photographer in Philadelphia, who had this job. It was listed marketing and production assistant. I had no idea what that meant. What I ended up doing was working with her on set, carrying all the equipment, setting up the lights. When I wasn't on set for a shoot, I was cold emailing people, cold calling people, seeing if they needed any photography work. And that was my first experience working with a entrepreneur who was really just like a solo founder, just her own business. Did that solidify your interest in photography or did it like make you like, oh, maybe, maybe I don't want to do this? I look back and it's really just like sunny skies and, and good times. When I think about it, my time with Amanda, yes, it was frustrating at times, but I think that that just kind of came with the territory of being an intern as well. But my passion is still to be a content creator specifically in making videos. I think that a bucket list item of mine is to make a full feature film at some point in my life. But I think I started to get a little scared of seriously pursuing that after my time with Amanda because I saw how hard the business is and, and how difficult it can be to get clients and how to create great work. And knowing what the career path typically looks like for people that want to get into film, 
So yeah, it was good, but I think it also did kind of change my course a little bit as far as like hedging risk, hedging my opportunity cost of not wanting to be a, a PA for that long. Yes, yeah, so was working for other people and was liking it, but felt like, you know, I wasn't scratching the complete itch of, of the entrepreneurial kind of dream, if you will. My teammate and I, Colin, wanted to start our own thing. Colin was a couple years older than me. And at that time, we looked at what our strengths were. We were lacrosse players, weaknesses, too many to list but identified an opportunity to have a youth club team in the Philadelphia area, as well as a lacrosse tournament for club lacrosse teams. Colin went to a high school right outside of Philly, and so we were able to use the fields at his high school to run this tournament. We kind of unknowingly walked onto a huge opportunity that now there's like so many lacrosse tournaments and so many club teams. And that was my first legitimate business with someone else. It was cool. It was cool to kind of combine something that I was really passionate about with starting my own venture. There was a ton of valuable lessons. The triumph of the business was the Meltdown Lacrosse Tournament, which was going to be held late June, maybe early July, outside Philadelphia. And so the year prior, we started working on logistics, like planning how many fields we're going to have, recruiting, reaching out to club teams, high school teams that might be interested in coming. We ended up having 30 teams commit our first year. And we also charged, I think we charged $750 a team, which was a huge bargain but we knew that to get into the game and, and to look like we could add something different, we wanted to be a little bit lower cost. The reason we also were able to charge lower is because we were getting the fields for free and also all of our friends were helping out run the event. And at this time, Colin, uh, unbeknownst to me, is, is not happy with the work that I'm producing or the initiative that I'm taking and starts um, delegating things to some of his family members and to other friends. And I start to slowly get left in the dark about um, things that are happening with the business. Colin is two years older than me. He's had more work experience. And so I understand why he made those decisions. When you talk about like the climax or the success and also the downfall, it almost happened the same weekend. I'm still 50-50 owner but Colin has gone ahead and tasked everyone else with doing everything and he's, he's kind of delegated me out of the business and I was upset. I think I still have the email I wrote him. And we decided to part ways. He, he kind of bought me out. We, we were profitable from that first event and from the club team. He wrote me a check for 50% of what that was. I think it was like three grand and he took over the business and, and ran with it. In the wake of that, like, how are you feeling? And are you like, okay, I need to make the next thing I do successful. Like, what are you thinking about focusing on uh, stepping away from this business? Uh, I just decided that maybe working for other people is, is better for me. The, and, and for years after that, I was like, just don't go into business with friends. Don't go into business with friends or family. Like, 
I, I still kind of have that, that mindset. There's an exception to every rule, and I wouldn't even call that a hard rule. Like, I don't really believe about anything being super binary in business. There are husband and wife duos that have incredibly successful companies. They work well together. They're somehow able to turn it off. But for most people, it's very, it's very difficult. And I think that also you just learn things about people that you didn't. It's like you don't, you don't ever want to be upset at your friend because they're like not doing a good job. <laughs> At 20 and 22, Kyle and his friends lacked the communication skills to figure out what wasn't working between them. In the short run, Colin's betrayal dealt a severe blow to Kyle's entrepreneurial spirit. He walked away from his first venture, doubting his own potential. But in the long run, Kyle gained some invaluable lessons. First, dialogue fosters trust and is key to any business relationship. It's better to tackle problems head on rather than to let them fester into a grudge. Second, dialogue reduces misunderstandings by giving people a chance to explain themselves. Maybe they're struggling with the pace, or maybe they're confused about a task. For the time being, Kyle decided that entrepreneurship wasn't his calling, and that he should get coached by more seasoned players before he steps up to the plate again. However, backing away from leadership wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It opened the door for exploring new interests, beginning with fashion. When I was a junior, I remember being very anxious about what I was going to do once I graduated. The, the idea of starting my own business, of like paying rent and, and being independent off of something that I created just didn't seem feasible at that point. And I remember talking to my mom about what my opportunities might be. I didn't want to go into finance, didn't want to coach lacrosse. And she recommended that I apply to the Bloomingdale's executive buying program. And for those that are listening to this and thinking about getting into fashion or like, what does it mean to be a fashion buyer? It is equal parts analytical, um, interpersonal and creative. So the analytical part of it, which I, I was surprised at how much I did like, was understanding sales trends. And so un understanding what your sales are versus how much inventory you have. And like, it's a whole kind of arithmetic puzzle that you have to look at to be successful in that business. From an interpersonal standpoint, uh, managing vendor partners is something that I realized that I had a, a natural knack for. And networking and, and communicating and coming up with ideas together and collaborating was something that I enjoyed. And that kind of led into the, into the creative part of pushing limits either creating new products with your vendor partners based on things that you're seeing in the market or coming up with new campaigns from a marketing standpoint. There, there's something about being in that world that, that there's a lot of energy there and it, and it really inspired me. There's something about fashion that excites me in the same way that an amazing public speaker or seeing an amazing athlete or a great movie. I wanted to be close to that. Like no one's ever been like, I love accounting and I get really inspired by balance sheets. Maybe they do, and God bless them if they do. But for me, it was this selfish need to want to be close to things that just feel like they have really exciting energy that makes me think differently. Kyle's ability to channel extraordinary energy into different interests accounts for how he could tackle a million things without losing his game. 
But as we'll see, simply having energy wasn't a guarantee for success. He'd also have to learn when to harness it and when to bridle it. Could you, could you talk about how lacrosse comes back into your life? My last week at school, uh, me, my fellow seniors, and the coaches go out for a night in the town. And I drink a little too much. And I got in a scuffle with a bouncer at a bar. And I ended up getting pretty hurt. I got hit in the head and spent a couple nights in the hospital with a fractured skull, a brain contusion. I was, yeah, it was very scary. You know, I, I think back, I don't remember any of this. At the time, I was a candidate to play in the, in the professional league. And at that point, I still totally identified as a lacrosse player. I was really excited to play at the highest level. The next six months, I had to learn how to walk downstairs again. I lost my sense of smell and taste way before the pandemic. I lost it because I had a mild traumatic brain injury, yet uh, was incredibly lucky to make a 99.5% full recovery. I say that 0.5% because I have a little bit of permanent hearing loss in my left ear, but my aspirations of playing pro lacrosse were delayed, maybe inevitably. I didn't know if I was ever going to play again. I was grateful. I was incredibly grateful. I was, I was embarrassed because I was kind of a stereotypical, overconfident college lacrosse player. Like I just getting humbled like that for actions that I took was one of the most rewarding things that has ever happened to me. I was just excited to kind of be a better person. <laughs> That's kind of what I've been trying to do. So I wasn't really playing lacrosse, but the Israel Lacrosse Association had just been created around the same time, unbeknownst to me. I was contacted by Scott Neese, who's the founder and managing director of the Israel Lacrosse Association, and I was invited to try out for the national team. So I'd been at Bloomingdale's about a year, and the World Lacrosse Championships, which are held every four years, just like the Olympics or the World Cup, is not just a bunch of Jews playing, but it's like the Olympics of lacrosse. And then in 2014, the World Games were held in Denver, and I played for Israel on the world stage. It was amazing. I didn't stay in Israel for as long as I ideally would have liked to because of my commitments to working full-time at Bloomingdale's. And also at the time, my dad uh, actually got sick. He came down with a very rare inflammation in his brain. The, I think the technical term for it is autoimmune limbic encephalitis. It's something that has been happening to people for years, it's, it's, a, it's an autoimmune disease, just the same way that psoriasis is. Sometimes it's misdiagnosed as a person going crazy, but really it can be treated with the proper steroids. And somehow that's what my dad got. Um, it was very scary, personality change, was in the hospital. But luckily we were able to get in touch with one of the doctors in New York City, one of the only doctors in the country or the world that, that recognized what this was. Um, People literally get sent to psychiatric hospitals because they're misdiagnosed and, and not treated correctly. So uh, he, made, he made a recovery 
but very lucky that we were around the, the right professionals that could help them. I did have a passion for fashion, as they say. That I would have being a buyer at Bloomingdale's. My first job at Bloomingdale's, I was the assistant buyer in luggage, which has got to be one of the top three unsexiest departments that you could be in. I was pretty bummed about that. I thought I was going to be in menswear or maybe watches or something cool. I was in luggage, uh, but I had an amazing boss, and it was a really great area to learn the fundamentals and, and strategy of merchandising. After that, I was promoted and I became a senior assistant buyer in women's fragrances. And then after that, I became a planner in costume jewelry. Luggage, fragrances, jewelry, it gets stronger and stronger over my four years there, but I keep being told to stay in my lane. I always want to go over to the marketing department and talk about cool things that we can do with them. I'm talking with vendors about doing new events. I'm just like, not, I'm doing my job, but I'm, I'm not necessarily spending more time on my job. I'm, I'm going above and beyond in other areas that no one's really like, why, Kyle? Why are you doing this? Why do you have this much energy to do things that you're not supposed to really be doing or care about? Can you tell me like a, a concrete example of someone saying like, stay in your lane? Yeah. When I was in Women's Fragrances, my mom introduced me to a really interesting human named Paco Underhill. Amazing name. Even more amazing person. Paco is a retail anthropologist. He gets hired by huge companies to go in, understand their the traffic patterns in their stores, also show them what other parts of the world are doing so that they can offer their consumers an amazing experience. I met with Paco and said, I think that you can add value to Bloomingdale's stores. I want to introduce you to the CEO of Bloomingdale's. I'm a senior assistant buyer. I'm a nobody. And I go to my boss, who is two steps removed from the CEO, and I say, I met this guy, Paco Underhill. He's done work for Macy's. He's done work for Lord & Taylor. I would like to be a part of a conversation with Paco and the CEO. And again, this guy's like, what are you doing? This is so ridiculous. We set up a lunch meeting with Paco, the CEO, Tony Spring. Wait, you set um, it up? Or are you surprised that you actually got it to go through? I was. I was a little bit. I was a little bit. But I remember, so it was me and Paco and then three people at Bloomingdale's that were like so high above me that their bosses weren't even there. And like it was, and right before we walk in, Howard, who was my boss's boss, he was like, Kyle, don't say anything in this meeting. <laughs> Just sit there. Like you're so lucky that you're at this table. And I, I, lo I loved Howard, like, the hierarchy at Bloomingdale's was just super corporate. It was like, a, it was a place where, and, and I was like, this is, why? This is crazy. Creativity doesn't just spring out of the void. It's cultivated by its environment. When you're surrounded by people who appreciate your ideas, you naturally lean deeper into your creative side. Every problem becomes a challenge, each setback an intriguing puzzle to be solved. 
Kyle didn't just need inspiration. He needed an environment where he could train his creative muscles. He needed supporters who trusted him to explore outside his lane. After experiencing the constraints of Bloomingdale's by-the-book environment, Kyle decided it was time to search for a new home field. There's actually a couple huge things that happened really around my final couple of months at Bloomingdale's. One is I, I get into NYU, I get into Stern Business School. There was an article that came out in 2016 written by Julia, oh, I forget I forget her last name, but someone at BuzzFeed. And it was about these jeggings that look like denim overalls, but they're like made of a soft sweatpant material. Since I was wearing clothes, I've always loved overalls. And people knew about my affinity for, for overalls enough that when Helena saw this article, she sent it to me because she thought that I would get a kick out of it. And I, if I'm not wearing overalls, I love being super comfortable like most people do. I just love sweatpants. And so when I found sweatpants overalls, it was incredible. But when I immediately went to Google them, they didn't really exist in the way that I was thinking about them. That problem marinates in my head for, for months and months. I leave Bloomingdale's, I accept a job at Birchbox, I go to Birchbox, and I also start attending NYU part-time, um, taking class at night. And the other thing that happens around this time <laughs> is I start teaching at Orange Theory. Orange Theory Fitness. Keep burning. Uh, group, group fitness coach. So my, my days just become insane. And I don't, if, you're, if you were to ask me why, I don't know why. I mean, I was like, it didn't seem like I wasn't overstretched. Much later, I actually got burnt out when I started sweat from home over the pandemic. That was like maybe the first and only time I've actually, I think, experienced burnout in my life. But it was for different reasons. But I was getting up at like five in the morning teaching a couple of group fitness classes at Orange Theory, going to Birchbox and being the men's grooming buyer all day, and then going to like a strategy class at NYU at night. And that was like a typical day for me during those years. It was crazy, but I loved it. So I'm at NYU, and I think in my second semester, I have this amazing teacher, Robert Siemens, and he's talking about Amazon and he's talking about this cool technology that Amazon has called Fulfillment by Amazon, a service where you can send your inventory to an Amazon warehouse. Amazon will make it prime eligible, pick, pack, and ship it for you, also handle returns. I thought that this was amazing. And I also was still thinking about sweatpant overalls and I go, that's it, I'm gonna just make sweatpants overalls and I'll sell them uh, on Amazon through this FBA service. It'll be a great little side hustle for me. Lo and behold, Alibaba did have a sweatpant overall manufacturer. And I reached out to them because of my time at Birchbox and Bloomingdale's, I was used to, when I reach out to people and ask for a sample, they send me a sample for free. Cause that's when you work at a big place like that, they're happy to do that. I think we went back and forth negotiating the price for the sample for two or three months. I finally got down to $90 or so, and I got them, and they were amazing. A huge point that I, that I haven't mentioned yet that 
instilled in me a lot of confidence that this would work is I utilized Google's keyword search planner. And you can search the keyword volume for any specific keyword during any time frame. Before I created Swoveralls, there were about 500 people a month that were looking for sweatpant overalls. And that was enough for me to make 500 pairs. I was like, wow, if, if people are actually Googling this and just like me, they're not finding anything, you know, there, there will have to be some paid marketing expenses, but the organic search is already there. And the rest is history. So what was it like actually selling those first 500? Like, and how did you do it? Oh, it was amazing. I was playing, I still play in a uh, softball league in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. One of my teammates at the time, Shelly, had her own really successful apparel company. And she introduced me to a guy named Michael Rothman, who was part of the founding team at Thrillist and had um, gone off and started a, um, a blog for dads called Fatherly. Shelly introduced us. And Michael said, these are great. I'll have one of my editors write an article about them. And so two months after I was selling these, Fatherly wrote an article about the comfiest thing you never knew you needed, Swoveralls. And then Thrillist picked it up. And then Pop Sugar picked it up. And so what happened to your sales? We sold our first pair September 2017. We ended that year doing about $67,000 in sales, which was great. The next year, we did about 190 in 2019 is when we did our Kickstarter. That's also when Shark Tank aired. We did about 320. And then in 2020, we did about 750,000. Pandemic happened. It was crazy, but we also kind of became like everyone's official work from home uniform. And then 2021 was, was our best year yet. We did just a little under a million dollars. July 2018-ish. Uh, I'm still at still Birchbox. Kind of have like one foot out the door. Because now I'm being told at Birchbox that I have to stay in my lane as well. Except now it's not like stay in your lane as it relates to your specific job at Birchbox, it's like stay in your lane with your job at Birchbox because you're spending too much time on swoveralls at work. <laughs> um, one of my vendors that I worked with at Birchbox knew a casting producer at Shark Tank, just was, was friends with him. And this guy, we could relate to each other because he worked full-time at Google, but he also had this part-time sock company, the Sock Hustle. And we sold his socks in birch boxes. And one day he said, you know, I would love to introduce you to my friend who works at Shark Tank. He's a casting producer. His name's Ali. And I said, no, don't introduce me. We're not big enough. I don't know if I'm ready. And I can understand a bit why Kyle might be worried. I mean, this show was intense. If you don't know, Shark Tank is a show where entrepreneurs pitch their best products and ideas before a panel of investors known as the Sharks. Who are the Sharks? They're self-made millionaire and billionaire investors who are entrepreneurs themselves. In less than an hour, people either see their life stream shattered or they hit a home run. I don't know if he just 
ignored me or if he didn't hear me. But the next day, there was an email introducing us, and Ali was immediately super bullish about getting Swoveralls on there. He's like, this is going to be perfect. We want to have you on. I was in front of the Sharks for about 45 minutes. They were professional, kind, and supportive. The way the edit came out, I was very lucky because I was nervous that they were going to edit it in a way that maybe didn't make the brand look good or maybe didn't me make, make me look that good. But um, the Sharks were concerned about me not having as much of a focus on the current product and wanting to expand too quickly. Here's a clip from Kyle's time on Shark Tank. Another area where people have been reaching out to me a ton is the college market. Kids yeah, at colleges want their markets, logo on skills, it. Yeah, Kyle, Kyle, you're kind of answering colors, all the questions the wrong way, in my opinion, right? Because if there was enough demand, you talked about selling out with the inventory you had, right? But if you saw enough intrinsic demand, you wouldn't have to be thinking about all these other markets. It would be, I can't keep up. And that's not the sense I'm getting. And so for those reasons, I'm out. Okay. But I wish you the best and congrats. Thank you, Mark. But Thank what you. did make the edit was them saying, well, wait, you're, you're in business school right now. You were a buyer at Bloomingdale's. You're currently at Birchbox and you did all this on your own, self-funded. It's like, why? You don't need us. Like you're doing a great job. Like we wish you the best. Keep, keep crushing it. The truth was I didn't I didn't need them. This the way that some entrepreneurs go on there and they're like, if you don't help me, I'm gonna go out of business. Of course, having the support of someone like Mark Cuban and also having their checkbook doesn't hurt. So I was I was genuinely going on there to make a deal, but the fact that I didn't wasn't it didn't mean that Swoveralls wasn't gonna live to see another day. You get this advice from the sharks. It actually seems like kind of encouraging. After it released, do you notice any like big sales or anything like that? All the sharks say, no thanks, good luck. I walk off set, the producers go, great job, Kyle. That was good TV. We will let you know if it airs. And if it does air, we'll give you like a two week heads up. Six months go by, like radio silence. I didn't even get an offer, so I, having watched the show a decent amount, preparing for, for my time on it, I realized that you don't see a lot of people that like don't even get offers uh, that go on. And I started to get disheartened and I'm like, it's never gonna, it's not gonna happen. It's probably just never gonna air. They're not gonna use it. Then April, 2019 comes around and the, sh and the producers say, Kyle, congratulations. Your episode's gonna air in two weeks. I don't have any inventory. It takes about nine weeks to make a thousand pairs of swoveralls. Oh no. So we're freaking out. We're setting up a pre-order campaign and it airs. We get a ton of traffic to our site. A lot of people pre-order. Having been on Shark Tank is a really nice feather to have in your cap. It opened up some doors. It's also the gift that keeps on giving in the sense that it's re-aired like over 10 times, maybe closer to 20 at this point. We always see a little bump uh, in traffic to our website. Kyle was on the right track and the steep rise of his sales year after year proved it. Now that he had momentum, he just needed to maintain it. The pandemic was really challenging for Swoveralls, but we were really fortunate versus some other companies for sure.
I remember in December of 2019, when shit was starting to hit the fan in Wuhan, my Chinese partners were freaking out, and so was I. Like things were gonna shut down, and that was that was a bummer. I was like, well, thank God we still have LA. And then as the pandemic slowly crept across the globe, and LA went into lockdown. At that point, China was actually just starting to open up again, and so we got incredibly lucky that we were really never actually not producing swoveralls during the height of the pandemic. You know, the takeaway there from a supply chain standpoint is, as soon as you can get more than one manufacturing partner, whatever you're doing, do it. So all this time, I'm at Birchbox Business School. I'm still coaching group fitness, and then I, I left Birchbox in 2019. I wanted to focus more on swoveralls, and also could lean a little bit more into group fitness coaching to help pay rent while building the brand. So in March of 2020, I am furloughed from my group fitness gigs because all the studios in New York City closed. And the same day that we got let go, Brendan, my my colleague and former co-founder, texted me and said, "What business are we going to start?" And that day, we created Sweat from Home, which was a virtual group fitness experience. We were holding workouts through Zoom. What we really focused on, and what made Sweat from Home different from Peloton or a lot of these other virtual fitness experiences. Is that all of our classes were not only held live, but also the coach could see you, and because they could see you, they could provide feedback as to your form, and more importantly, they could provide positive encouragement. Because our thesis was like that dopamine drop people get when they're acknowledged for working hard within a group setting. There's no reason that that doesn't have to leave because we're not all working out together in the same physical space. And so, sweat from home. Was a live two-way group fitness experience that people could do from the comfort and safety of wherever they were. At the height of Sweat from Home success, January 2021, we have 12 coaches on our staff. We're offering over 60 classes a week, and we actually had raised some money from a small group of angel investors and family and friends. And we thought that we were going to go head to head with Peloton because we were doing something different. And then vaccines are issued. Things start opening up. As a result, attendance for online classes starts to decline. In order to make the economics work, you have to pay instructors like not a lot of money. And we wanted to pay everyone fairly because I also was an instructor. And so, in order to do that, you have to either charge people a lot and like charging people more than fifteen or twenty dollars for a virtual class. It was difficult to do. It was just through Zoom. When talking to investors and stuff, we're like, working out from anywhere is here to stay. Working from home is here, so why not working out from anywhere? So we weren't just tied to the pandemic, but our numbers clearly were, and so we realized that we didn't have a vision for the business that excited us. More importantly, we didn't have a plan that we felt like would provide our investors with a positive return on their investment. So we decided to make the hard yet right decision to shut the business down this past October. And give our investors a partial refund of their money. But we kind of saw the light at the end of the tunnel, or, or, or lack thereof, I guess you could say, and said, "You know what? Here's some of your money back. Thanks for giving us a shot. It's not going to work out." To quit or not quit. 
We live in a culture that looks down on quitting. The abundance of platitudes like never give up or winners never quit is a clear example of this attitude. But blanket statements like these often fail to capture the circumstances of the bigger picture. Kyle's decision to give up sweat at home didn't simply come from a desire to avoid a risky venture. It was a matter of opportunity cost. When deciding between two ventures, you generally want to choose the one with the most natural growth potential. While Sweat at Home gained traction relatively quickly, the demand for its services was unpredictable. On the other hand, the demand for clothes, especially when they're a stylish hybrid of the two most comfortable items in your closet, that was unlikely to shrink. Often, the most precious thing you give up when pursuing an opportunity is not money, time, or energy, but other equally attractive opportunities. As Kyle's decision shows, successful people aren't those who never quit, but those who can discern when to finish a race versus when to pursue a different track. So we closed the digital doors at the end of October. I took a break from coaching in November. I realized, I think, that like I wanted to coach again at, at some point. I knew that I like it, it was always this really exciting side hustle for me. I think coaching group fitness is, is such an amazing gig because you can kind of be this character, the center of attention, almost like you're performing. Yet also help people achieve their fitness goals. It's totally different than being a personal trainer where you're like, yes, helping people achieve their fitness goals, but you're also like part therapist as well, which can be really rewarding too. And a lot of people love that. And teaching at NYU is also something that's incredibly rewarding for me. It's, it's hard to do it well, and, and I hope that I do if any of my students are listening, but putting together a thoughtful lesson plan and bringing in guest speakers and, and creating experiences that not only are conducive to learning, but more importantly, inspire people to want to do hard things and to do cool things. It's like I tell my students, the reason why I teach is because of those handful of teachers over my career that weren't good enough. I didn't feel like were exciting. Now, those teachers juxtaposed with the teachers that everyone has that make them want to like jump out of their seat with excitement and, and like you stay after class and you talk to them because you're so energized. Like I do it because of both of those people. So yeah, my, my time on a weekly basis now is spent like 30% SWO overalls. I'd say eh, maybe like 20% teaching, 20% group fitness coaching. And then the rest is training for Ironmans. I have fallen in love with Ironmans and I'm actually in the, trying to get my pro card. You know, when I, when I say all those things, people are like, wow, how do you do it all? And I, I mean, I feel like my, the balance right now has never been better in my life. The more times that you say yes, the more of your control you're letting go of. That's something that I have had to learn the hard way over the years. I want to do everything that everyone asks me. I, I want to help. And you'll find that when you do all of that, you have very little time for yourself. And that's, and that's happened to me a couple of times where I just felt like really burned out. And when you're the founder of a company, like it, it never, you don't really clock out, it's always on. It's important that we understand that you can't just be altruistic to a fault because there will be nothing left for you. Having this balanced lifestyle, looking towards the future, what are you most excited for? From a personal standpoint, I feel like I am excited to parlay this new balance into 
whatever whatever comes up next like if you had told me that i'd be sitting here with you sam five years ago talking about all the things that we just did like it would seem overwhelming and so i i like that i now have a better foundation to attack exciting opportunities in a, in a more sustainable way i am signed up for the brooklyn full marathon at the end of april and then i'm signed up for two half ironmans later this year i'm really excited about those this past may I was lucky enough to sell a minority stake of Swoveralls to a small private equity fund. And so now I have partners and it's not just all of my money on the line. So I'm really excited about that. And then also from a personal standpoint, uh, I got married recently and I'm madly in love with my wife throughout this entire journey from the beginning of Swoveralls. Really when I transitioned over to Birchbox, she's been a part of it and an amazing support. I mean, to do anything, let alone build a business and have all these other things, it takes a small village. So having that type of support from my family and from her has been a game changer. So it doesn't happen without, without those people. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox. Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadat Rai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Kandaza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.